Hi, this is Tony Tolado, and this is Sci-Fi Talk, a podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our own humanity. My Christmas Composer Marathon continues. Sometimes it's better to explore humanity with beings that are not truly human, such is the case with the series Siren. I speak to the series composer in a moment. Hi, this episode has my complete conversation with composer Michael A. Levine of the series Siren, now airing on Freeform. He was very kind to supply us with some musical cues for our listening pleasure from the series and his body of work. Let's listen. As I said, I, I had a chance to see the first two episodes, and I I know as we uh, we taped this, the show hasn't aired yet, uh, but I, I like what I see. I really like the mythology of it. And uh, and the music, uh, you know, the first thing I've got to ask you about, that siren song, a, a bit of a challenge, I would think. You know, it was one of the first things that I wrote for the show because I felt like it was so crucial to the vocabulary of the show. And um, it was one of the first things that the showrunners and the network both agreed on that they liked. I didn't tweak it that much from the very first go-round. There, there are three elements of it. Um, there is, of course, the, the voice, which is uh, sung by my Mari, is the, the name of the singer. Um, mm-hmm. Her full name is Mariana Barreto, but she goes by Mari professionally. Um, and um, M-A-R-I. So, so it was her voice, and then I had um, a, a harp, but the harp is plays backwards because it's it's this the harp in itself is kind of associated with you know the deep sea and mermaids and all this stuff but it had to be weird and somehow screwed up and so the harp plays backwards and then the other really key element to it is the sounds that sounds almost like whales or some sort of aquatic creatures they're they're actually harmonics on my violin uh, artificial harmonics with lots of echo and so it's this mixture of uh electronic treatment and oh i will also say mari's voice i've got all sorts of fun things to make it to make it otherworldly on it and um and really the the only key difference between the first pass and the one that they ultimately kept was that i changed the key because initially i had it higher and they thought, well, it sounded a little too girly and light, and they wanted it more womanly. And so I made it lower, and, and it, it worked. And they and then everybody was happy. Yeah, I could have sworn. When I heard, first heard it, I could have sworn those were real, like, whale or dolphin sounds. Uh, congrats, man. You totally had me fooled. It, it, the intention isn't to fool you as much as to make something that you can't quite put your finger on. You go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's whales. Or what? No? Huh? What you know? It's and and which is of course what you, you want to have. One of my favorite things that Malcolm Gladwell writes about in I, one of his books. I can't remember whether it's Blink. I've read a lot of them, but he talks about um, how to make something that's a real hook. You and he was particularly talking about advertising. If you have something that's a little wrong, it actually your brain can't quite relax with it. It kind of keeps thinking about it. Well, the idea behind this was that it's supposed to be this hypnotic call. And so the have some things that are just a little wrong, not obviously wrong, like they're not real whale calls. They're made on a violin and the harp is a harp, but it's backwards and things like that. It, it, it just, it adds to the sense of 
you can't quite let it go. Yeah. And it actually, I, I know in the first two episodes, it shows up, uh, you know, essentially when the sirens talk, that's what you hear. I like when it shows up like that on the, on the series. Yeah. Well, actually, the very first time you see Rin, who's the central character, sing it, and she's in Ben's apartment. I don't think that's I'm right. giving anything away. Uh, and, and it goes from being very present and untreated to being within a few seconds, you know, this clearly hypnotic thing. And it was tricky because when they shot the scene, they didn't have the piece of music yet. I had to retrofit the piece of music to fit what her mouth was doing, and um, it wasn't easy, I have to tell you. Later, when they, in, in the season, they, by then we had the piece, and she actually, uh, Aline would, uh, who's the, Aline Powell, who plays the character, would sing it uh, on camera, which made it a lot easier to follow. Um, she's actually a pretty good singer, and but we would use Mari's voice ultimately, but it was, it, we'd, we'd, at least I could, had something to sing to. Yeah, actually, I spoke to her uh, as we taped this this morning, uh, and we talked about an incredibly challenging role. Um, 
I, all I can say is, without giving anything away, is there isn't a lot of dialogue for her in the first episode. So uh, it's all body language and movement, and it's really amazing what she does. Probably harkens back to the days of silent films, where you have to convey everything through your gestures and your vo- and your looks. And she does an excellent job to really create this otherworldly uh, character. And of course, you jump in and give her the voice that she needs to have us totally believe that she's a siren. It's a nice, when everything comes together like that, that's creating a character and a little bit of magic too. I like, I love that. Well, uh, she, once she does start talking because mermaids are really smart and they can learn human language very quickly. uh, Once she does stop, start talking, she developed an accent for the character that you really can't quite put your finger on it. I described it as a cross between Bjork and a dolphin. Um, But uh, it's, uh, I asked Eric Wald, who created the, the show, if who came up with this uh, dialect? And he said she came into it, the first rehearsal had it worked out. So Aline's talented actor, yes. for sure. Very talented, no question. No, it, the, the whole cast is is really well, uh, in, in, and I always harp on this. I, I just love diversity, and it, it's such a great diverse cast. Uh, I know it, it represents what the world looks like more than a lot of TV shows. And I'm, I'm really happy about that. So it's cool stuff. Um, musically, uh, besides the siren song, uh, what other cues did you have to uh, come up for the show? Well, you know, it's interesting. When I first began working on the show, when they first brought me in, I had a lot of references to sea shanties because it seemed, oh, well, they're mermaids are from the sea and so on and so forth. Uh, but the reality is that the the network felt that that was a little out of alignment with what they wanted to convey. And um, so it, it that ends up being kind of the subconscious of the show. It's still there. You'll hear uh, I have an instrument called a tenor violin and another one called a chiola. A tenor violin is an octave below a normal violin, and a chiola is the same register as a cello, but it's something I put under my chin. And I played things that reference uh, sea shanties, but it's all very indirect. So as a result, you don't ever go, oh, I'm in Ireland. You know, it's all very much uh, sotto voce, as they say, you know, below the below the level. Oh, it's below the surface. And then in addition, there, there, the, we also have this Native American element. Um, I have some Native American flute playing and um, some drumming that's uh, referencing the Native American culture of the Northeast, which was part of what Eric was going for with the show was he he wanted to make something that part of I think what interested him about the mermaid and siren cultures were were that worldwide there are versions of this and uh, including in Native American mythology. Now the interesting thing is in Greek mythology sirens and mermaids are separate but in most of the world they're actually the same. Wow that's amazing. Uh, Yeah the mythology of the show I would tell was very well thought out right down to the look of the creatures. I think people will be very impressed, as I was when I first saw the pilot. And uh, and and obviously we'll learn more about their culture. I've only seen two episodes. But uh, but already there's, 
you get a little glimpse of what the relationships are. There's more with Michael A. Levine and his music coming up.
This is Ethan Phillips from Star Trek Voyager, and you are listening to Sci-Fi Talk. One thing I admire about the work you do, and uh, I mean, you, you've been at this a while, and the cool thing is, is that in your travels or, or just sounds you hear, you pick up different instruments and you incorporate it in all your projects. And that just separates every score and really makes everything sound fresh. Uh, was that something early on that you wanted to do or something that you just eventually did? I'm old enough um, that, dangerous to say in Hollywood, but I'm old enough that when I started, you really didn't have these incredible sample libraries that exist now. And so if you wanted a particular sound and you couldn't afford to hire a session player, which was the way I was for most of my 20s, if, and you didn't have a friend who played it, you better play it yourself. So I play a lot of things rather badly, but the wonderful thing about technology is I can fix that. <laughs> we, when we talked at Comic-Con, we talked about Dunkirk, which I've seen already, and I heard your violin on there, and uh, I looked for it, and I, and I got it. And uh, it's an amazing movie, too. Uh, it, it totally changed the way war movies are done, usually... You know, you see the the boardroom and and the generals plotting everything, and then you see what's going on in the field. This was great. This was all through the eyes of the men that fought there and were trying to leave there. And that really what brought the story home to me. And even the brass that was there, played by Kenneth Branagh, was going through it too. So it was really cool. I really enjoyed. Uh, you know, that movie and, and also what you did musically on that, too. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, it, it's, it was Hans Zimmer's musical vision. What he and Christopher Nolan have in common, and they've collaborated now on, I don't know how many films, of five or six, but they have, uh, they're both conceptualists. And I think that at the heart of this movie, there was actually a very similar thing that was at the heart of... Uh, uh, of inception, which is it's a, this whole question of the nature of time. And a lot of people have noticed that Hansa score employs something called a shepherd tone, which is uh, this a musical barber shop pole where you you have the sense that something is always going up, whether or not it even though it isn't really because there's something that comes in the bottom. And so it's like a barb, you know, like a barber old-fashioned barber pole where the the, the it always looks like it's going up. Now, he's done that before. What was interesting in this score in Dunkirk is that there's also something called a risset rhythm uh, uh, illusion. The risset rhythm illusion is a similar thing, but it's with rhythm. It gives you the sense that time is always accelerating, but it isn't. And it, it was, it, that was built in right from day one and uh, something that, you know, I thought Hans executed rather brilliantly. You've done I, I, 10 episodes. That's what's going to be running. And then hopefully more if the show catches on, which I'm hoping it does. But how much time did you have between episodes or did you get a few scores in the can before, you know, before the, so that the episodes were all finished before air? You know, this was, by television standards, a rather uh, sane schedule. We started working in the fall, and I I just finished about a week and a half ago uh, on episode 10. So everything's done before the first one airs, and uh, it was quite civilized in that regard. The, The hard part of it was 
figuring out what we wanted to say with the score. And it wasn't the only element. They were also struggling with other aspects of, you know, visually and so forth, because um, it's a unique piece for Freeform, which is transforming itself right now. It, 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 I don't know if you're aware, but it used to be uh, ABC Family, and so it was really kind of a kid-friendly neighbor, uh, network. And you've got a kid-friendly network in origin, and you've got something that involves mermaids. Um, well, you're instantly expecting something that's going to be aerial or something. And part of what the mission of the show is to explore this very much more sophisticated and dark side of the nature of existence in humanity. And the mermaids are are kind of like uh, a mirror image of us in that regard. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, with this show and really before it's Shadowhunters, they're really changing the image. I like what Freeform is doing and even beyond. They really have changed the image of the channel a little bit. And I'm looking forward to more of this uh, going forward, which will be cool. Great. What Anything on the, on the table for you next? Well, um, there's a film that I scored, uh, a documentary called uh, 3100 Run and Become, which is um, about the longest foot race in the world. And that will be premiering at the end of next month uh, at a festival in Sedona. And I'm excited about that, partly because it's just a good movie and it was fun to score, but also because... I wrote a song that the closing credit song uh, is score is sung by Roberta Flack, who uh, is you know one of the great voices and uh, has not been active in a while. She's had some health issues she's dealt with, and but she really rose to the occasion. And uh, she's in her 80s now, and just did a did a, did a wonderful job on the song. And you know, I started out as a songwriter before I started scoring. I I have cuts that, believe it or not, the monkeys covered. You said you couldn't tell the doormat from my face. You said if I had brains, I would pawn them. Could be I finally got the knock off all my thumbs. Could be that you're the one that was
not back when it would have made me millions of dollars, unfortunately, but with the, the second go-round of the monkeys in the 80s. But um, any rate, uh, they, uh, this song is, it's, it's a song I'm proud of, and to have somebody who's, I consider, one of the great voices of the past half century sing it was very exciting. Yeah, no, she's, oh, what a talent. I mean, just her range and, and, and just her phrasing. She's just an amazing singer. And I'm really glad she's doing it again. And, and uh, hopefully she's feeling better. And I'm glad she's back performing again where she belongs. Uh, she's a treasure. And uh, I'm, gl- I'm glad you were able to do that with her. That's awesome. Um, you know, I, I, we were my wife and I were watching television last night, and we talked about it at Comic Con about the Kit Kat Bar song that you wrote, of course, the jingle. And uh, we, we were, it came on last night. It was a hip hop version, and we both kind of looked at each other because she knew I was going to talk to you today. And it was like, yeah, I know. It's like it keeps it's playing somewhere every day in every country in probably different languages. It's amazing. One, two, one, two, three, four. Sometimes I think my career goes in direct inverse proportion to how much effort I put into something. The Kit Kat jingle was written in approximately 30 seconds in on an elevator ride. And uh, it has it, it's probably the best known thing I've ever done. I mean, you know, I... I've worked with Lord. That's pretty well done, known, the, the uh, cover of uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Welcome to your life. There's no turning back.
There's more Sci-Fi Talk, so stay tuned. Back on Sci-Fi Talk, I'm Tony Tolato. But I, I have pieces performed. Lang Lang played a piano piece of mine. I've had stuff performed at Lincoln Center, and I've written musicals and this and that and the other. But what do people remember? <laughs> Give me a break. And hey, I'm I'm very I'm proud of it. I'm I'm delighted that you know 30 years later people still can sing it. Um, but uh, it is there's an irony to it that it's probably the least amount of effort I've ever put on in on anything that anybody knows. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I, you know, I wanted to mention one other thing um, in terms of projects. Um, airing on PBS either now or very soon is a, another documentary I scored called Served Like a Girl. It's directed by Lisa Heslov, who did a wonderful job. Uh, it tracks these women veterans. Um, people may not realize this, but women veterans are the fastest growing group of homeless people. And there was an organization founded by a formerly homeless women, woman veteran, uh, 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 which is the Miss Veteran of America contest. And it's sort of structured like a Miss America contest, but that's not what it's about. And it the movie follows the lives of uh, six of the contestants. And it's just fascinating in terms of what each of them has dealt with. Each one was had a story. Uh, a, a couple of them had some pretty serious uh, uh, combat-related uh, issues. And uh, then others had other challenges that they've had to deal with, and so it, to to it's a it's a one of those films where it could have been maudlin and pitting, but instead it's enormously exciting and uh, uplifting, uh, and so it I'm I'm proud of my contribution to that one as well.
Well, I'll tell you, that's a, that's a great story. Uh, we, we certainly don't talk about our women veterans as much, which is a damn shame. And uh, it's good to bring it, their situation to light. And if, especially if it's uplifting, I'm all for that. And uh, it's great to shine a spotlight and kudos for that. That's a great project to be involved in for sure. Uh, Lisa Heslov um, is an, one of those really talented and unassuming up-and-coming directors. And uh, nice. she's going to be directing a film called This Is How It Ends, uh, which is pretty it turns out to be a whole lot more relevant than i think people realized at the time because uh at the time that she decided to 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 take on the project because it's about a school shooting and about a mass school shooting and it is uh i remember reading the book and calling her up and i emailed her and i said you realize how relevant this is it was just very uh, scary. Yeah, it is scary. That is really scary. Uh, do you uh, ever get the itch to perform some of your stuff, uh, your music at all, uh, like in a, in a concert hall or live? I know other people have for you. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I used to have a performing duo with uh, Mac Quayle, who scores uh, uh, Mr. Robot, and we called it Zeitgeist and Kismet, and we did uh, improvisation stuff together. It was great fun. I played electric violin, he played keyboards.
We haven't done that in a while. He's way too busy now. Um, but uh, I do love to perform. I started out as a performer, and every now and then I'll get called by a friend, uh, John Kate, who's a wonderful Roots performer uh, who I played in a band with when we were both teenagers. Uh, he just performed out in Malibu and I came and sat in on a set with him but for the most part I'm not doing a lot of performing I would like to have more of the pieces that I've written uh, for example I've written a lot of concert music and I'd like to have them performed more often and get the opportunity to write more of that because as much as I like writing for media for films television games and so forth uh, you're always writing to serve somebody else's vision and it's kind of fun when you just do concert music because it well i'll tell you a funny story when i i I wrote a concerto for pedal steel guitar and orchestra that was premiered in nashville a few years back
wonderful pedal steel player, a guy named Gary Morrison. I got a message from the, the conductor, uh, from his uh, secretary called me and said, uh, oh, you know, uh, he really wants to talk to you. It's, it's very serious, um, a, a very serious question. I was thinking, oh, crap, he hates the third movement. I've got to go back and rewrite it. I mean, what's going on? You know, all that stuff, all those self-doubt things. And um, I, the phone you know, he calls me back and he goes, um, I'm looking at the score and is the piccolo where written or an octave above? And I went, oh, let me look at the score. Oh, yeah, actually, it sounds an octave above. Okay, fine. And that was it. That <laughs> was like, oh, oh, where's the piccolo? Is it transposing or not? And, you know, after working in the the film and television business where it's like, well, now can you do the whole thing backwards and make it more like the temp and besides which we want it green? You know, it <laughs> it was a different experience. Yeah, that, no, that's great. That's great that that was all it was. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I do have to say before we go that I remember the first time I heard an electric violin and I thought it was the coolest thing. Uh, it, it just, it just, the, the pitch and everything that comes out of it is so unique. I totally love it, and uh, you know it. It doesn't get its due, but I'd love to see more, even in concert halls, more electric violins instead of the. I mean, in addition to the usual stuff, but it'd be kind of neat. Well, uh, I came up in an era where if you had an electric violin, you plugged it into a wah wah pedal. Uh, people would call you the Jimi Hendrix of the violin. I, I, I found out about five of my friends were called the same thing at the beginning of their career. Uh, but uh, I love doing that stuff. I love playing rock violin and, uh, you know, having distortion and, uh, you know, delay and all of that fun stuff because there's a kind of liquidity in rock guitar that is almost string-like, like, like uh, bow, bowed string-like. And it's always, you know, with, when Jimmy Page wanted to blow the minds of his audience, he would pull out a bow and play on the guitar. And um, it, it, and then they had Ebo and all this stuff. So guitarists have been trying to be violinists for decades. And so, you know, it's kind of fun to return the favor. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time. Really looking forward to, uh, for everybody to see Sirens. I think they will be pleasantly surprised and uh, it is, is not this is not your aerial. This is a whole nother animal, literally. And but it's uh, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, it's maybe the people that you might think are the real monsters aren't the monsters on the show. Yeah, I, I, that's another thing I like about it. But it's really cool. It's on free form. And you'll hear this amazing siren song that Michael wrote. So thank you again, buddy. Thank you. Take care. Watch the series and listen to The Haunting Score of Siren on Freeform Thursdays and On Demand. Thanks once again to Michael A. Levine and his engineer for giving us these cues and their help. This is Tony Tolado. Thanks so much for listening.